Radiolab is supported by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate. Then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Radio Lab is supported by the John Templeton Foundation, funding research and catalyzing conversations that inspire people with awe and wonder. Learn about the researchers making the latest discoveries in the science of well-being, complexity, forgiveness, and free will at templeton.org slash podcast. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Okay, before we start, uh, New York, New York City. Uh, if you're listening and you live in New York, you know somebody who lives in New York. Or, or New Jersey, you know, Long Island. Yeah, wherever. New York-ish. Uh, know that we have a live show on Wednesday, May 16th. We are taping a new episode of a series that is shortly to be here from amazing producer Molly Webster. It's all about sex, this particular event, particularly sex ed. Come join Molly and company for a night of stories, debate, and nervous laughter. <laughs> You can get tickets at radiolab.org slash sex ed. It's going to be good. Also, uh, what you're about to hear is going to be good, but we should warn some of you that there will be descriptions in this coming upcoming podcast right now that uh, are kind of grim and about people dying in the desert. So if there's kids in your house or you don't want to listen to that, maybe take a break. But otherwise, here we go. Uh, wait, you're listening. Okay. All right. <coughs> You're listening, listening to Radio Lab. Radio Lab. From WNYC. So we come back here where you see you had another case. Oh, and this. Oh, what? What is. What are those hairs? Or well, that's, what? that's dried muscle. Oh, that's so muscle. The, the closest I can. The closest thing I can say is uh, the muscle dries out. So it gets stringy and shredded. Okay, wait, wait. Let's well, actually let's just start from the beginning. Okay, so so we are in what what room is this again? We're in the special procedures uh, room okay. of the uh, Pima County Office of the Medical Examiner, and what we're looking at here is a case, uh, mostly skeletal remains. So we have a, we have a skull. We have a few. We have some parts of the, the spine. Spine, it looks like, and then just two. And all three, all three major bones of the lower limb. So the okay. two thigh bones, the femurs, and the two tibias, and the two uh, fibulae. We, kn- we know it's a male. He's an adult. Okay. Uh, 20 to 30 to 40-year-old uh, 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 migrant. He came in in late January, early February. And uh, animals found him. Maybe 50% of his skeleton is missing. His upper limbs and his pelvis and most of his spine are missing and his hands and feet are missing. We have evidence here that a vulture was feeding was feeding on the person. I, I, I don't know if this is... That's a beetle. That's a dermestid beetle. That's a beetle? That's called a hide beetle. They're, they're found globally. Right. And these hide beetles specialize in, in, in eating dried, hard tissue. So he's, st- he's still eating? He yeah. is. He is. Wow. He was in the body bag. He and his colony would have been on the body. Wow. Uh, in the body bag. And uh, although we try to get most of them off during our yeah. exam... You can see there's lots of little crevices where a single bug could 
could be. Wow. Oh, wow. That's so... Yeah, wow. I'm Chad Abumrad. I'm Robert Krulwich. This is Radio Lab. And today we present the final episode of our Border Trilogy. With producers Latif Nasser and Tracy Hunt, and this is episode three. Which we're calling What Remains. Yeah, okay, so just to catch everyone up. Here's Latif. Uh, the person I was just talking to, his name is Bruce Anderson. He's a forensic anthropologist at the Pima County Office of the Medical Examiner in Arizona, which is where when they find a body of a unidentified migrant in the Sonoran Desert, that's where they bring them. And Bruce had been working there, you know, on and off since the 1980s. But he told me that it was only in the early 2000s that he started seeing, you know, just more and more and more of these migrant bodies being brought in. And we're just crushed by the weight of all the dead and all the missing persons reports. And, uh, you know, you're it's like working a mass disaster when people are still dying and planes are still crashing around you. And you, you throw your hands up in the air sometimes and you just think, when's it going to stop? And it hasn't stopped. The number of bodies found last year was in the same range as the year before. The number of people crossing did go down after Donald Trump's inauguration, but traffic has basically rebounded. So people are still coming through the desert. They're not being deterred, which made us wonder, is deterrence, that fundamental idea behind our current border policy, is it even possible? Now, in some ways, that's a policy question, which we talked about in our last episode. But it's also a human question. Is Jason still there? I'm still here. And that's what led us back to the person who we started this whole journey with, the anthropologist Jason DeLeon. All right. Can you hear Latif, too? I sure can. Good morning. Oh, good morning. Fantastic. Well, I, I feel like maybe we should just start off where we left off, which is that you were going to tell us the story of, of Maricela. Sure. Um, when was this, by the way? This would have been June of 2012. Okay. So we had been about two weeks into the pig experiment. And this is a series of experiments where Jason and his team, mostly students, uh, looked at how pigs decompose in the desert in order to understand how people decompose in the desert. And it wasn't until about two weeks into this experiment where we were out hiking one day with a group of about nine people. Down in southern Arizona. And so on this particular day, on this trail that I had hiked many, many times, a student had run ahead to, to check stuff out and was taking pictures of us as we were walking up this hill. He turns around and starts yelling at us. He says, hey, you got to come up here. Something has happened. So I threw my backpack down, and I race up this hill. And by the time I get up there, I, I see that, that he's kind of staring at this body that's just laying face down in the, uh, in the dirt on this, on this trail. Like a fully intact body. Yeah. A woman's body. You could tell it was a woman because she had long hair. Um, you know, she's wearing camouflage clothes, stretch pants, women's running shoes on. She's got a scrunchie around her wrist. But the rest of it, I mean, her body was incredibly bloated. I mean, to the point where it looked like it was about to um, to pop from all of the gases that had built up inside of her, her body cavity. I didn't know what to do at this point. I mean, you know, the students start walking up. I mean, these are young students. We had someone in the group who was 18, 19. For some of the students, this is the first time they've seen a dead body. One of them was crying. I tell everyone, I say, hey, look, you got to go sit down and give me a second here to figure out what, what it is we're going to do here. So first he called the police. We did that, and then we kind of had a conversation. Are we going to 
photograph this person? Are we going to record any information? Is this, are we still doing research right now? And Jason decided, yeah, we should, we should document this. You know, we took some notes down. Gray to green discoloration about what she was wearing. Brown to black discoloration of arms and legs. Took some pictures of the body. Her fingers have started to curl. Her ankles are swollen to the point that her sneakers seem ready to pop off. There's a steady hissing of intestinal gases. And then it just got to the point where I was like, okay, this is enough. I don't want to do this anymore. And so they covered her with a blanket because Jason noticed the birds. Circling overhead. For turkey vultures. And so at that point, they just sort of sat down and waited. For the police to come, the sheriff. An hour went by, two, three, four. Just waiting with the body. It was about five hours in that a sheriff and three Border Patrol agents show up, and they had hiked three miles to get to Jason with a stretcher. And so they bring the stretcher. Um, The sheriff puts on gloves. He asks them a few questions like, did you guys put the blanket on there? And then they roll her into this white body bag. And as the authorities do that, Jason, because she was face down, Jason gets to see her face for the first time. And so he writes a paragraph in his book, and it's, it's pretty gruesome. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read to you the paragraph that he, he writes about it in his book. As her body turns, I see what is left of her face. It is frightening and unrecognizable as human. The mouth is a gnarled purple and black hole that obscures the rest of her features. I can't see her eyes because the mouth is too hard to look away from. The skin around the lips is stretched out of shape as though it had been melted. Her nose is smashed in and pushed up. She died face down, and the flesh on the front side of her skull has softened and contorted to fit around the dirt and rocks beneath her. The scene is a pastiche of metallic gray and pea green. Whatever beauty and humanity that once existed in her face has been replaced by a stone-colored ghoul stuck in mid-scream. It's a look you can never get away from. After this thing had happened, and it really just shook me in a lot of different ways. Jason says he, he just couldn't shake the question. Who was this woman? How did she end up face down in the desert? So that night... Um, I remember Jason calling me... Jason called a friend of his, a woman named Robin Reinecke. Him being really clearly shaken and, you know, asking for advice. Robin actually runs this nonprofit in Tucson called the Colibri Center for Human Rights. Colibri Center for Human Rights. And they do a lot of work with the missing and with um, bodies that have been recovered. So Jason tells her, Look, we, today we had this, this thing. We found this person out here. and Could you help us ID her? Now, the thing is, Robin's office is actually in the medical examiner's office. So that means that just down the hall from Robin is... The guy we met at the beginning, Bruce Anderson. Probably a couple hundred people, or at least bones of a, a person, are in here. We so have Bruce is working on the medical examiner's side. So anytime an unidentified migrant body comes in, Bruce tries to piece together who this person is, looking at... The dimensions and the shape of the skull. And markers. Robustness of the bones. That like looking at the length of the bones or the density of the bones. By the non-fusion of these separate bones. Looking at whether some bones in the body are fused together, which is something that happens right after puberty. Bruce can actually figure out approximately what age the person is, their sex, their weight, their height. And in the case of the woman that Jason found... Her body was surprisingly in relatively good condition. So pretty quickly, 
uh, they were able to determine, you know, she's probably in her 30s. She's five foot four. They were actually able to get fingerprints from her as well. Meanwhile, on the other side, on Robin's side. Wow. So each of these tabs is a person. Is that right? Yeah. She's dealing with hundreds of missing persons reports. All day, every day. Um, she spends her days yeah. taking calls, yeah. going through her voicemail. Which is full of relatives searching. I'm looking for my uncle. He disappeared in 2010. Or I'm looking for my daughter. She crossed um, two weeks ago. We haven't heard from her. And she's also getting tips from different people, uh, different aid organizations. And it's actually one of those calls that leads to a break in the case of the body that Jason found. Huh. Okay, so this is an email from me from 2012. Hi, Jason. Just a quick update regarding the woman that your group found. The case number is 12-15-67, and as of yet, she has not been identified. I but Robin tells Jason that she got a call from an aid organization that had spoken to a guy who had crossed the desert with a big group of people around the same time and around the same area where Jason found the body. He said that he had recently left behind two fellow travelers who were in serious medical distress. He said one of them was an elderly man. 70 years old. And the other was a woman maybe from Guatemala or Ecuador, late 30s, early 40s. It isn't certain that this group is related to ML 12-1567, but it's highly likely. I will contact Guatemalan and Ecuadorian consulates regarding new missing persons cases. And eventually, using all the information that got gathered, Robin was able to determine that the body that Jason found, it's the body of a 31-year-old Ecuadorian woman named... Maricela Aguipoya. Maricela Zaguipuyas. Um, Robin gets in touch with Jason to tell him. Jason then asks her... I would just would appreciate if you could, um, you know, help me at all connect with this family. That request would, oddly enough, lead Jason to New York City. That story in just a moment. Hey, it's May from Cincinnati, Ohio. Radiolab is supported in part by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science and technology in the modern world. More information about Sloan at www.sloan.org. Radiolab is supported by Babbel. Sometimes self-improvement can feel like a pretty overwhelming journey. So what if this year you just got a tiny bit better every day? When you're learning a new language with Babbel, that's exactly what you're doing. Babbel is a science-backed language learning app with quick 10-minute lessons that have been handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. You can learn everything you need to have real-world conversations, café s'il vous plaît, from vocabulary words to culture and more. And if Babbel can help you start speaking a new language in just three weeks, imagine what you could do in a few months or a full year. Here is a special limited-time deal for Radiolab listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash radiolab. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash radiolab, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash Radiolab. Rules and restrictions may apply. Radiolab is supported by Zbiotics. If you've been looking for some help waking up refreshed after a fun night out, Zbiotics pre-alcohol probiotic is here to help. 
Zbiotics is a genetically engineered probiotic invented by scientists to help tackle rough mornings after drinking. This probiotic is the first drink of the night for a better tomorrow, as it works to break down the byproduct of alcohol, which is responsible for rough mornings after. Go to zbiotics.com slash Radiolab to get 15% off your first order when you use Radiolab at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with a 100% money-back guarantee. If you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. That's zbiotics.com slash Radiolab and use the code Radiolab at checkout for 15% off. The archives at Carnegie Hall hold treasures from our cultural history. In the new podcast, If This Hall Could Talk, We use these items as touchstones to explore how the past shaped the world we live in today. I'm your host, Jessica Vosk, and I'll be joined by historians, performers, cultural critics, and others to look back at the iconic venue's legendary and sometimes quirky history. If This Hall Could Talk, from Carnegie Hall and distributed by WQXR. Listen wherever you get podcasts. Chad, Robert, Radio Lab. We are back with the third installment of our Border Trilogy, What Remains. And when we left, Jason, along with uh, Robin from the Calibri Center, had managed to ID the body of the woman he found in the desert. And so now he was trying to get in touch with her family. I don't know. When people disappear or when they die in the desert, I think that the families make up, you know, lots of stories run through people's heads. And so I was hoping that if I could find this person's family, I could at least say, this is what it was like when we found her. Um, This is what we think had happened. So Robin was eventually able to get Jason the contact information for... Maricela's brother-in-law. Who we'll call Fernando. And I make the awkward phone call that says, hey, I'm the person that found Maricela in the desert, um, and I would like to come and see you if that's possible. Turns out Fernando actually lives in New York City, but he had spoken to Maricela just before she left. And when we heard his story, we decided, okay, we better send a reporter, Tracy Hunt. To talk with him. Yes, so I went to visit Fernando at his apartment in Queens. <laughs> he lives there with his three dogs. Friendly guy, a little shorter than me, neatly dressed. He's got, you know, dark hair, longer on the top, shorter on the sides. And when I got there, he he pulled out a bunch of photos of Maricela. So this is their marriage, their wedding photo. This is the matrimonio de ellos, la foto. She was his uh, brother's wife. Oh, they look so young. Were they 19 when they got married? So in this picture that Fernando's showing me, it's his brother and Maricela. They're in a church and they're posing at the altar. She's in a white satin gown. Her hair is long and dark and shiny and she's got kind of like an oval-shaped face and... Um, you know, she, she looks beautiful, but even though it's her wedding day, the, the thing that struck me is that she's not smiling. Not even a little bit. Is she, was, she like, was she serious like that? Uh, yeah, actually, that's part of the reason why my mother said she didn't like her as much in the beginning. She said, uh, you know, she always has an angry face on. She looks like somebody who doesn't have a lot of friends. And on top of that, Fernando says she also had a habit of getting his brother in trouble. You know, she would tell my brother to sneak out of the house to go see her. To go out dancing, to parties without permission, you know, those kinds of things. But 
Fernanda says she eventually won the family over. She helped out at home. She treated my mom really well. Especially his mother. Actually, I think my mother loved her more than she loved us. <laughs> so Maricela and Fernando's brother, they got married. They ended up having three kids, two boys and a girl. Maricela had a job in a factory that made counterfeit jeans, I think Levi's. And Fernando's brother, he would go around to different villages selling sodas. And they just couldn't really manage to make ends meet. They were living real rough at the time. I mean, going when I went to the house and saw where they had lived. So Jason, after he connected with Fernando, he actually ended up going down to Ecuador to meet Maricela's family. Before she had left, I mean, they were living in a, a one-room plywood shack with a dirt floor uh, and animals running running through the house. And, you know, and she had told her her relatives, she's like, look, my kids are literally starving here. At the time, I wasn't able to help out as much financially because I was also helping build a house for my parents where they were also going to go live. And so I wasn't able to support them as much or help out with things like school. And so, you know, what she really wanted to do, you know, in order to, like, send her kids to school and all that, she really wanted them to have what she never had. Because she never had anything. And so that was really the pressure that she was under. So Fernando says in 2012, he called home. One time when I called home, my mom said that she wanted to talk to me. So I said, okay. Maricela got on the phone. And she told me that she wanted to come here. She told him that she and his brother, they wanted to follow in his footsteps. That if they could come to New York like he had, they could make money, send it back home, and help out their kids. That that was the only way. And immediately, Fernando was like, Absolutely not. No. So Fernando told her no because he didn't want her to go through the same thing he went through 10 years before. Eh, 2001, he was 17 years old, about to turn 18. And his aunt was about to go to New York. And she convinced him and his parents that if he went to New York, he'd be able to get a job, make more money, and support his family from there. To have a better life, to have the things we needed. So my father thought about it and gave his permission, but he told me not to stay here too long. And so he used his grandfather's land as collateral and took out a loan for $12,000. $12,000? Yeah. Uh, Do you know what the interest rate was on the loan? 10%. 10%. Yeah. So one thing that a lot of people have talked about is the fact that prevention through deterrence, it professionalized the human smuggling business because not only did these migrants need, you know, guidance from all these South and Central American countries, they also need guidance through the desert. So now you have the smuggling business that's more expensive and also more dangerous. Oh, no. El coyote hemos dicho que máximo era 15 días. Yeah, so the coyote told us that 15 days maximum to get here. Fernando says he and his aunt took a bus from Ecuador to Peru, and then from Peru, they flew to Panama. Got on another bus. And then somewhere in Costa Rica. I remember the path, it been really mountainous. There was a river, all that. 
this bus pulls over and the coyote who was with them at that point just said, Okay, you have to get off here. <clears throat> when we got out, they took our luggage and they threw them on the ground towards the river. And they said, you have to cross the river and someone will find you there and signal to that person. And we were left there like that, with my aunt saying, hold on, that wasn't the deal. The deal was to take us all the way to Mexico in cars, but from that point, when we started crossing mountains on foot, that's when horrible things started to happen. From that point on, they were packed into the trunks of taxis, hidden in basements, chicken coops and huts, totally filled with rats. And three months into this journey, a, a journey that was supposed to take just 15 days, somewhere in Mexico, Fernando says that he and his aunt are taken to this rundown hacienda, this just sprawling ranch house. Inside the ranch house, there were more than 250 people there. From all over the world, Chinese, Central Americans, from every country, from all over South America. There's all these rooms filled with people, and Fernando actually says that there were all these armed guards all over the place. Nobody was allowed to leave. And so we were um, pinned in there for about a month. And while he was there, this part I didn't tell Jason what happened to me there. I was abused sexually. Fernando says that he was sitting outside the hacienda one day with his aunt when a group of men approached him and told him that he had to go inside with them. And he said no, that he was fine sitting there, you know, outside. My aunt begged, begged them not to hurt me, to, to please not abuse me or, or do anything to me. And they said, no, don't worry that that they only wanted to ask some questions inside, but that, that wasn't what they wanted. They told Fernando, look, you can come with this now, or you can come with this later after we beat up your aunt. So finally, Fernando relented and went with them. And when they got inside the hacienda, they went into a room. And once we were inside, they raped me three times. How many of them were there? Like six. After that, I want to... I just wanted to die. After a couple of weeks, Fernando and his aunt finally got out of this hacienda, and they start their trek into the desert. Fernando thinks that he went through the same desert that Maricela would try to cross ten years later. He's actually caught by the Border Patrol and held for about a month before he manages to bail himself out of detention and make his way to New York. And Fernando says he shared all of this with Maricela, except his own rape. But he did tell her that migrants do get raped, sí. that he's seen it happen, that he knows it happens. Even when I told her all of that, she said none of that would happen to her. She knew how to defend herself, and, you know, if she had to, she would hit people. And then he told her, you might have to go without food or sleep outside. 
but que, que iba a pasar, que, que but she said that it didn't matter, that all that mattered was getting here because the kids are the ones that matter most. Va vale la pena por los hijos. That any sacrifice made is worth it for your kids. And then he doesn't talk to her anymore. That's, that's actually the last phone call they ever have because he thinks that if he cuts her off, maybe she'll just give up. But she goes to one of her brothers, and her brother says that he would only pay for her to go, but he's not going to pay for her husband to go. When you found out that she was going to come by herself, did you try to tell your brother, look, she, you, she, you shouldn't let her come here by herself? Come at all, I should say? Yeah, yeah, I called, but my brother said that there wasn't another option and that he wanted to go first, but her brother had put the condition that she go first. And because they didn't have another option, she said she would go. In May of 2012, Maricela left Ecuador. About three weeks later, right before she walked into the desert, Maricela sent her family a message on Facebook. She told them, I don't know how I'm going to get there, but I am going for my family. God willing, I will get there. When did you finally hear what actually happened to her? Someone called me and told me they were from the consulate. And I said, OK, finally, she's been found. And then they told me. Maricela was dead, and they didn't know what day exactly she died, but that she'd been dead for about a month. Exactamente murió, pero más o menos que ella tenía un mes muerta. It was just really difficult wondering if I'm going to do more damage than, than good by, 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 by going to meet these folks. Eight months after Maricela's death, Jason came to New York to meet Fernando, and he brought with him the pictures of Maricela's body that he took when he, when he found her in the desert. You know, he was like, just right now, show me the photos. And I was just dancing around that for, for over an hour. Jason warned that the photos were really upsetting. There were so many like that. But I said that it's okay to show them to me. And I give him this book of photos that I've printed out. And it's got pictures of this shrine that we built for her um, in the desert. It's got pictures of my students who were there. And then eventually it's just pictures of like the back of her head so it's her hair it's some of the clothing it's her, it's her hand i saw all the photos and the truth is that it tore me to pieces to see or imagine everything she had to endure in the desert she tried to keep going dragging herself. Jason brought me photos of how she was found and her body outstretched, trying to keep going. Before Maricela's body was sent back to Ecuador, Fernando decided they should have it sent to New York first. When I talked to my family, I said, you know, her dream was really to arrive here. And so I thought, at least we can fulfill that dream with her body. To be able to have, to have a wake for her here. They held the wake at a funeral home in Queens. Almost 100 family members and friends came to celebrate Maricela's life. They were told to keep the coffin shut. The next day, her body went back to Ecuador. 
Fernando had to stay in New York because he knows if he were to go back to Ecuador, it would just be way too hard to try to come back to the United States. He says that, you know, right now he's just trying to fulfill a promise. The promise that I made to Maricela's body when it arrived here that I was going to look after her children. I was going to try to give them what she had wanted for them. When you think about that conversation, do you think that there's anything you could have said that would have made her stay? I told her what could happen along the way. I thought that would be a way of deterring her. No. And it's worth pointing out, uh, you know, I mean, more generally, prevention through deterrence as, as, a, as a strategy, it hasn't deterred people from coming to the U.S. either. Uh, the annual budget for the Border Patrol is roughly $3.5 billion bigger than it was in 1990. We have about five times as many Border Patrol agents, and yet the number of people, immigrants, living here undocumented has more than tripled during that time, from 3.5 million to about 11 million. And more people are coming every year, every day, and more people are dying along the way. Yeah, let's just do it here. About a year after Maricela died, Jason got a call from her family again. Do you want um, you want Maverick or Iceman? You have to name, you have to name the drones. <laughs> you guys are Top Gun fans. Yeah. Another family member had disappeared in pretty much the same place Maricela did. So which is this? I think that's that's Maverick. That's Maverick. I'm going back to the to the Arizona desert basically because Maricela has a um, had a cousin who a 15 year old cousin named Jose Takuri who disappeared almost one year to the day that she died. Um, I was able to kind of triangulate based on interviews with people who he was with and with information from um, from various folks where we think he went missing. I mean, I told his mom that I would not stop looking, and um, it took me a couple of years to figure out a way to 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 to, to do that. Um, but right now, it's we'll go back and we'll use these drones and, and see what we can come up with. And you know better than anyone what happens to bodies in the desert now, I think. I mean, why are you still looking for him? Or why, you know, yeah, as callous as that question sounds, I guess. For me, part of it is I just don't know what else to do. You feel so hopeless. I told his mom, like, I won't, I won't stop looking for him. I'll do whatever I can, whatever little thing that I can do. And if I can't find him, well, maybe I'll find somebody else. So we will. What was that? It's getting mad at me because it's running out of batteries. We'll do one. We'll do one more. 
One more run. This episode was reported by Latif Nasser and Tracy Hunt, produced by Matt Kilty and Tracy Hunt. Jason DeLeon's book, which inspired this series, is called The Land of Open Graves. Special thanks to our interpreter, Alison Corbett, and for giving voice to Fernando in English, Carlo Alban, and Carlo's manager, Ted Brunson. Thanks also to Hayden Stewart, Raul Raspastrana, Paulina Alonso Chavez, and Ambassador Jacob Prado from the Government of Mexico, and to the staff at the Pima County Medical Examiner's Office and the Calibri Center for Human Rights. I'm Jad Abumran. I'm Robert Krovich. Thanks for listening. from Katona, New York. Radio Lab was created by Jad Abenrod and is produced by Soren Wheeler. Dylan Keefe is our director of sound design. Maria Matasar-Padilla is our managing director. Our staff includes Simon Adler, Maggie Bartolomeo, Becca Bressler, Rachel Cusick, David Gebel, Bethel Hapte, Tracy Hunt, Matt Kilty, Robert Krulwich, Annie McEwen, Latif Nasser, Melissa O'Donnell, Arian Wack, Pat Walters, and Molly Webster. With help from Amanda Aronchik, Shima Oleai, Jake Arlo, and Reed Cannon. Our fact checker is Michelle Harris. Radiolab is supported by Cozy Earth. When you think about summer comfort, words like breezy 
or soft maybe come to mind. With Cozy Earth's luxurious bedding and loungewear, you'll get the comfort of home wherever you roam, allowing you to elevate your summer getaway no matter where or even if you're getting away. Cozy Earth bedding is temperature regulating and made from top-notch materials, including viscose from bamboo that can turn any living or sleeping space into a sanctuary of luxury and comfort. Their loungewear and pajamas offer you their signature level of comfort while maintaining an elegant fit so you can look cute and be comfy even if you're taking a long flight or car trip. Cozy Earth provided an exclusive offer for Radiolab listeners. Get 35% off site-wide when you use the code Radiolab at www.cozyearth.com. That's 35% off at CozyEarth.com, code Radiolab. Discover your next destination for ultimate comfort at Cozy Earth. 